Today's episode is brought to you by Altec Incorporated. Altec is a leading custom injection molding and precision machining manufacturer of key parts and components for rockets and satellites. And yes, that includes small sats. Altec works with customers to develop solutions tailored to their mission, needs, and goals. Based in the United States, Altec's dedicated team provides design assistance and manufacturing for proprietary and confidential projects. As if Altec's custom injection molding, in-mold electronics, heat treating, painting, and testing wasn't already the whole nine yards, Altec also provides assembly and kitting for a wide range of structural and mechanical products. Learn more at altec-inc.com. That's A-L-T-E-K-inc.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Pathfinder. Now, this voice may be surprising. You'd normally hear from Ryan, but today I am honored to be a payload member. I invited myself onto this podcast to learn a bit about payload and specifically our very own Rachel Zisk. My name is Tess Hatch. I am a former aerospace engineer who still likes to call herself an aerospace engineer, but now a partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, where I lead and invest in all things deep, frontier, tough, hard, whatever you want to call it, technology, specifically aerospace. I invested and had the honor of partnering with companies like Rocket Lab, Spire Global, Boom Supersonic, Drone Deploy, and many others. But I feel like the payload audience has heard a lot from me, but they haven't heard a lot from Rachel. So we're going to turn this around and I am going to ask Rachel a bunch of questions today. Who is Rachel? Rachel's a reporter for Payload, covering the business and policy of space for the daily newsletter and the science of space in her weekly newsletter, Parallax. Please subscribe, link below. She has covered a number of topics in science, health, technology, and finance for outlets, including, ooh, the Financial Times and Popular Science. Fierce girlfriend. Recently, she worked in genomics communications at the National Institutes of Health. I'm so curious, genomics to space. I mean, even more so, fun fact, she was the drama club president and in the poetry club in high school, and she's a former duck boat photographer. I first have to start with what is a duck boat? Oh, if you're not familiar with the duck boats, anyone from Boston will know what the duck boats are, but they're these old World War II like amphibious vehicles. So they drive around on land in the city, they give tours of the city, and then at the end of the tour, they go and they plunge into the Charles River. Um, And so my first job in high school was as a photographer, a tourist photographer for these boats. So I would work on the waterfront in Boston near the aquarium, and I would go and shoot tourists as they were getting onto these boats. And then they would get on the duck boats, and I would run over to the office, and I would print all the photos and package them up and run back and sell them back to the tourists when they got off of the tour. So it was a very strange, uh, very exciting first summer job, really. That should be your go-to fun fact. You know when you're introducing yourself, it's name what you do in a fun fact? That is the most memorable fun fact I've heard in a while. Really? You know, I'm glad to hear that. I always have a little trouble coming up with one. So that's 
from now on, my duck boat photographer first job. I'll keep that they in mind. They are a, le- a little nerve wracking. <laughs> You're like, what's entertaining and interesting, but filtered yes. and professional <laughs> duck boat photography. That's a great one. So Rachel, how you're now a space reporter. Mm-hmm. How did you go from drama club to duck boat photographer to barista to genomics comms to space? Yeah, you know, I think I've always just been the kind of person that had interests all across the board. The kind of person who, you know, once you kind of hit this threshold of knowing some enough about something to really be able to put the pieces together, just really being excited to dive in and put those pieces together. So early on, photography was one of those things. You know, you hit a certain threshold of like knowing how the cameras work and and how to put an image together. And it just becomes really exciting to want to do and do that more and more and more. And so that's why I applied to that job in the first place. Um, but I think my other interest all all along has really been storytelling. Um, and that's, you know, kind of the cliche line that everybody in journalism school has the same interest. Everybody wants to tell stories. Um, but I think combining those two just aspects of my personality, just this love of telling stories and, and connecting with people, which carried through the drama club and the um, barista experience too, I think just this love of connecting with people. And then also just this love of learning um, kind of drew me at the end of my college journalism experience towards science reporting. Um, So that's where I got into popular science, um, which is an internship that I absolutely loved. And then my first job out of college was with the National Human Genome Research Institute doing um, genomics communications, which is very, very exciting. And then after a while there, I just kind of wanted to change. I wanted to get back into journalism. I was doing public comms at the time. Um, and that kind of kickstarted my jump into the space industry. And here I've been ever since, very happily <laughs> learning the ins and outs of the industry. And this is a space where there's really, really so, so much to learn. Um, and it's exciting every day, um, which is, I think, why I ended up here and why I'm sticking with it so far. And hopefully the learning will never stop. I mean, I've been doing space stuff since my undergrad now more than <clears throat> a decade ago. And I'm still learning every single day about something new in aerospace, whether it's signs of life in the Venus atmosphere, which I (laughs) see is a fun topic of yours. We'll dig into it in a second. Um, Or the Artemis program, where we're about to land the first woman and person of color on the surface of the moon. It's just every day. Fascinating, exciting. So, Rachel, I want to double click on the storytelling piece of your story. (laughs) <laughs> pun intended, in a moment. I think that's super wonderful. That mm-hmm. North Star that has always guided you along your journey. But first, logically tactical. Like, why and how do you get to Payload? Yeah, so at the time that I found out about Payload, I was working, like I said, for the National Human Genome Research Institute. I was writing about genomic studies and um, really kind of working every day with the researchers who worked there and um, having these really exciting conversations about genomics. But what I wasn't, um, what I was kind of looking for, I was looking for a change in my job to something a little bit faster paced, you know, like it is a government job. So, you know, things are what they are. Um, and I had always had an, a love of space an interest in space, um, you know, since I was little looking at constellations in the sky outside of my house growing up. Um, And it was something that I had covered in bits and pieces at Popular Science. It was something that I felt that I I knew something about. And so when Payload kind of just popped up in my Twitter feed one day, um, I I followed them. And um, when I followed them, I saw that they were looking for journalists. And I started 
kind of drafting my email resume and my my cover letter to send to Ari and Mo, the co-founders, over email. And as I'm writing this cover letter, um, Ari at the time was DMing every single person who followed my Twitter account when they followed and just like greeting them and asking them to subscribe to the newsletter. And he saw that I had a science reporter, a science journalist in my Twitter bio, and he messages me and he's like, hey, you should apply to be a writer for us. Um, so it was kind of, it was a very startup kind of like mutual interest kind of thing when I first found out about Payload. Um, and I got on the phone with the founding team and it sounded like a really, really exciting. They were just about to launch this daily newsletter. Um, they had this really, really great business case and they had um, all these big ideas for the future of space media. And it was something that was just, it excited me so much at the time. And um, I kind of took the plunge, quit my job, joined the, I was the fourth employee, fourth full-time employee at Payload, and uh, the rest is history. A DM from Ari. Yes. What a story. <laughs> Classic. I'm sure that many of the listeners to this podcast can relate to that. I'm sure half of our subscribers at this point are people that Ari's DM'd on LinkedIn <laughs> and asked to subscribe to the newsletter. You know, it works. It works. It, it works. I got to say, I have to share. I have a Twitter at Tess Hatch. Please follow. But you'll know I've never tweeted before. And it's simply because the Twitter account is connected with my high school email account, which I've completely lost access to. And I've completely forgot the password 13-year-old Tess decided to put on her Twitter. So I lost the email. I lost the password. And Twitter, it's just, it's lost. My account is lost. But follow. And I subscribed to Payload, not from a DM from Ari, but after meeting Ari at a Velo 3D party. Uh, Velo 3D is the leading supportless metal 3D printing company. It can print basically any geometry without support structures. And uh, that's when I started following Payload. So some, it's, you know, DMs on Twitter. Others, it's, uh, it's, it's happy hours. Um, Rachel, you joined. You've been there a year and some change. It's, you joined as number four. How many are you at now? We're six full-time employees right now. Okay. Okay. Yeah, what think. is your favorite part of the job? And what's, you know, what has some, what's has some room for improvement? <laughs> yeah, I think my favorite part of the job is really what um, excited me about science reporting in the first place, which is really just every day getting to talk to people who are building really exciting, really innovative things. In the space industry, you know, everyone's got kind of these big grand ideas for what the future is going to look like. Um, and my favorite part of the job is that every day I get to get on the phone with these people and ask them about what they're working on and, and hear from um, some of the most forward thinking minds maybe in the world, um, about what the next big thing is going to be. And it, it feels very much like, you know, being a, being a reporter for payload very much feels like you're kind of on the forefront of, of what's going on. You get to be really tuned in and get to, I get to devote all my time every day to thinking about space, thinking about what's going on in the space industry. And that is such a privilege. And I would say the worst part of writing for payload is really just this kind of Daily deadline has um, a lot of challenges associated with it. Um, there are definitely days where it's 7.30 on the day of a newsletter that we're supposed to be sending at 9. And I'm looking at the document that we have, putting everything together. And I'm like, there's not really enough for a newsletter here. Like, what can I do? What can I pull together? What can I um, kind of hunt for in this, this last minute? Because um, while the newsletter format is 
is really luxurious as a writer in some ways. You don't need to be like the very first person to send out a story. You kind of have this time to to think about the news of the day and think about how you want to put it in context. And, and that is, you know, very rare in this 24-7 news environment that we live in. So a newsletter kind of does give you, in some ways, some breathing space to think and like and really consider the writing that you're doing um, before you hit publish. But also there is this sense that you need to have some news every single day. And sometimes there's just not news every single day. The space industry does not go by my personal deadlines. Um, I would love for it to get on that. But <laughs> I think that's probably the the hardest part, the the most challenging part of the job is just sometimes it's it's kind of a race to the finish. Yeah, that's super stressful. If if there's nothing in space that day, what do you do? What does payload write? I mean, the good thing about space is there's always something happening somewhere, um, whether it's big picture, long term trends, or if it's, you know, news about a, a contract or a launch or something that's happening that exact day. Um, so a lot of the time we'll, um, when we have those moments, we'll think a little bit bigger, zoom out, do something a little bit more evergreen, which is what we call content that isn't necessarily tied to a news event, but is still kind of interesting and and um, taps into some larger trend in the space industry. So that's how we try to think about it. Well, two sh- shameless plugs. Um, for today, the news of today, Rocket Lab is on track for our first launch from Wallops on December 16th from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern. It could still adjust pending weather conditions, but it's our first American launch and we're very excited. Um, second shameless plug, Rachel, I actually was not planning on bringing this up, but one of my fun facts (laughs) is I have a space comic. It's called from Ada Lovelace and Sally Ride. And it's about, it's like Dora the Explorer meets space. It's a little girl. It's a, a young woman who is exploring space with her artificially intelligent robot friend and, uh, it's, it's, it's Instagram. Um, I'll send you the handle. I, um, write it. And then I have an amazing partner, Josh, who illustrates it and add a underscore ride, a solid 19 followers right there. And about to be 20, <laughs> excuse me, about to be 20. Yes. I'll follow you back, Rachel. <laughs> and, um, it's just about various adventures that she goes on in space. So I say this just because there's ever a morning that you need to fill in something. There are 23 posts and I'll make this private if you want. And, and payload can have the post. payload exclusive. Thank you a so much. Payload exclusive. <laughs> no, I, I wasn't, uh, I, um, this isn't on the, on the script ahead of time, but typical me, I'm definitely going to go off script. <laughs> day in your life you have a 9 a.m deadline girlfriend i'm not waking up before 9 a.m sometimes (laughs) like do you have to and i guess what time does payload go out like when are you are you writing really late at night or what are your hours like just walk me through it a day in the life of rachel's esque yeah you know it's definitely not a typical nine to five um we do send that we try to send the newsletter at 9 a.m um today you sent it at 6 a.m oh that's 9 a.m eastern Oh, 9 a.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Eastern. So I'm based in New York and Ryan's in Austin and we're the 
there are other people who contribute to the newsletter, but for the most part, Ryan and I are the ones online in the morning. Um, so it's 8 a.m. for him. That's all. I don't even know if I could do that, but I'm up around 7.30 working on the newsletter most days. Um, and then, you know, I just, I spend my mornings looking for news, having conversations with people. I get on the phone. We have our team meetings every day, you know, pretty standard, I think, newsroom style, um, working from home type of day. We all work from home since we're all spread out all over the place. Um, and let's see, I usually won't start writing until the afternoon. So my mornings are usually phone calls, news gathering meetings. And then like after 3 p.m. in the afternoon, I'm writing. Um, in a perfect world, I have my stories ahead of time and I know what I'm going to write and I've done my interview and I can just sit down and write um, in the real world. Sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes I'm writing later into the evening. Um, but I also, you know, there's a lot of flexibility. It's not to brag, but if I want to go on the walk in the middle of the day, I could just get up and go on my walk and then come back to my job later in the evening and write. Um, but we try to have our stories done the night before. We have a copywriter, Carol, who um, takes a look at our whatever we've got, hopefully, as you know, ideally as much as possible the night before. Um, and then, yeah, we have everything pretty much set to wake up in the morning, load everything into our email client and hit send. Perks from working from home. Midday yeah. walks, getting a midday <laughs> fairies class. I mean, I honestly, I would have liked this 1230. Uh, Thursday's my favorite day at Barry's class, but I'm here talking with you instead. Oh, well, I'm sorry to ruin your, your Barry's class. Hopefully it's not too much of a drag. No, no, no. I also should have <laughs> clarified it. Like I'm up before nine, but it's usually because I like to work out in the mornings. Mm -hmm. So it's like, that's the me time. And you're, I'll wake up and I'll just think, you know, Rachel's been writing for, or editing the post for two hours. Usually editing, usually editing. It's not usually too much in-depth writing. Okay. So now let's transition to the storytelling, which is your journey, your North Star, your passion. But I got to relate this a bit to the readers. Mm -hmm. What was the most viewed article in 2022? Like oh, what makes goodness. a good article? When I, like when, when you're writing a story, like what are, what makes a big story? What was the biggest story of 2022? Like what makes payload success? What type of articles make payload successful? The most number of clicks, the most number of reads, like what's the secret sauce? Yeah, definitely. I couldn't tell you exactly what our most read story of the year was. Um, I don't know it off the top of my head. We have um, an intern, Peter, who does a lot of our analytics and things for us, and he would know. But uh, I unfortunately don't know off the top of my head what our most read story would have been. But I would say that generally the stories that do the best fall into one of two camps. So one of those camps is kind of the exclusive stories that are out in payload first that um, you can't really find anywhere else. So a lot of the time we'll work with companies who are doing fundraises and they'll um, give us the exclusive on their fundraise. And so that kind of first in payload news um, does really, really well, um, partially because you don't get it anywhere else, at least until um, it gets publicly announced and then maybe picked up in other places. Um, but I think what's, what's really exciting um, that also tends to do very well are kind of our longer form pieces. So lately we've been trying to do, um, dedicate more resources to doing longer, more in-depth, more considered pieces on our website, you know, web first articles. And so a series that I worked on this year um, that I was really proud of was this three-part series on orbital debris. 
Um, so it was talking about how orbital debris, you know, what the state of orbital debris is right now and the state of regulation and what different regulations are being considered, what other solutions are being considered from active debris removal to space situational awareness. And those were some uh, some of our longest pieces, I think, that we've published so far. Um, they range, they're not crazy long. They're about two to 3,000 words each. Um, and that series did really well. And that's also something that when in later newsletters, we're talking about a company who's maybe launching a, um, an orbital debris removal mission or who's working on something like that or who's you know increasing their efforts in space situational awareness. These are stories that we're able to link back to a lot. Um, and so if someone's looking for more context on orbital debris, what it is, what that means, um, we always include that link for them to click back and get a little bit more information. So slowly we're building up this kind of backlog of really in-depth researched stories and explainers that we can use for that purpose. And those are also some of our stories that I think probably have the most clicks and have done really well, partially because we're able to repurpose them in so many ways. Orbital debris is such a fascinating issue in the industry because it's so incredibly polarizing. On one hand, some people think space is, there's a lot of space in space. It's big. It's not a big deal. Calm down. We'll figure it out. And on the other hand, some people are like, space debris will make space unusable. And if we continue at the rate that we are and we're not good Samaritans of our space, you know, it's going to, it's going to be, we're not going to be able to launch satellites. And I'm curious with your in-depth research and diagnosis, but I, I sort of feel like I'm in between the two. I'm like, hey, we got to be good Samaritans. We got to work together, whether it's physical interference or radio frequency spectrum interference. And we got to make sure we're not communicating over the same uh, uh, RF spectrum. And we have to make sure, obviously, we're not hitting each other, which involves the Russian military, the Chinese military, the United States to stop doing these blow up tests where we cause these big space debris mists and these parts of low earth orbit unusable. But for the most part, you know, commercial companies are working together and we are, I mean, recently Spire and Capella had a potential collision. We chatted with one another, we got out of each other's way and we were fine. So I'm curious your, your takeaway from your three piece deep dive. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that I fall not squarely, but more closely into the latter camp of people. Um, they're kind of ringing the alarm bells, you know, saying this is an issue that we need to be really aware of. Um, you know, the Kessler syndrome is not happening right now. Um, this kind of uh, chain reaction has not begun. Um, but there is always that possibility. And one person being careless in low Earth orbit, you know, at the 550 kilometer range, one person being careless in that area could be disastrous for the entire space industry. And the space industry and space technology is something that we really, really need to protect, um, not just for the economics and the industry, but because it's something that people use every single day. So I um, just, you know, watching what I think there are corollaries to what happens on Earth with with climate change, everybody kind of human nature is to kind of shirk this responsibility and say, oh, it's not necessarily my problem. But I think I think so far the commercial space industry, I agree with you, it has done a very good job of working together and making sure that you're being responsible stewards of the space environment, um, using these advanced um, space situational awareness and space traffic management tools um, that maybe weren't available just a couple of years ago and really making advances in those areas. Um, I think that's really important to do. But yeah, I think that's something that the whole world is going to have to come to an agreement on, um, especially looking over the past few months. Um, 
there have been a few launches from China where um, boosters and stages of long march rockets are making uncontrolled reentries. Um, if we are to get to a point in the next decade where rockets are launching every single day and where there are more humans in orbit, even in a decade with the um, with the development of these low Earth orbit stations, we're going to be we're going to have to be way more careful as a global aerospace community. Um, and so that's kind of where I where I fall. I don't think that it's it's time to be, you know, you know, we're not cutting off launches. We're not saying no more satellites to lower Earth orbit. And you know, space isn't full. Space has space has plenty of space, as you said. But it's definitely something that we have to be aware of and be cognizant of and be forward thinking about because as humans we are not necessarily the best at thinking forward. Totally. And hey, the largest contributor to space debris is the leftover rocket parts, the fairings mm -hmm. and the second stages, to your point. And I'm delighted to be able to say at Rocket Lab, we don't leave anything in space. Mm -hmm. We um, don't leave any junk up there. I want to double click, though, on something that you said that I think is incredibly important is how important space is. We use space in our everyday lives, whether that's to navigate us to our destination via GPS, whether that's to watch television, direct TV. Radio, Sirius Radio, those names are names of satellites. But I do think it's also important from a technical perspective to differentiate. GPS and DirecTV and Sirius are school bus size satellites in geostationary orbit, mm -hmm. which orbits our Earth at the same speed in which the Earth rotates. So it's over a single point on our Earth. And geo is really well defined. There are parking spots, there are, you know, really explicit regulations keeping geo really safe. Mm -hmm. Leo is sort of like the the wild, wild west. <laughs> That's <laughs> what we got to figure out. And it's difficult mm -hmm. to figure it out because Leo, the satellites are whizzing around the entire Earth every 90 minutes, not over a single point. What is it? 18 sunrises and sunsets. The International Space Station at 500 kilometers experiences a day. They're traveling at 17,000 miles per hour. That's what we got to figure out. And that's where, yeah, sure, maybe, you know, we really got to make sure that space continues to be usable. Um, but some anxiety that helps me sleep at night. You know, <laughs> Geo's good. Geo's yeah. doing good. <laughs> That'll continue to be good. We just got to figure out Leo and then Mio also. If Mio isn't as popular. Why isn't Mio popular? Well, I think Mio just doesn't have necessarily the same benefits, um, with low latency and, and, um, frequent revisit that Leo has. Mio sits somewhere in the middle of, of, um, Geo and Leo. I think Mio is more popular with government uses and, and DOD applications. Yeah. Okay. So, so <laughs> you did a deep dive into space debris. What's the deep dive you want to do next? Oh, let's see. Um, I'm working on something right now that I would love to continue a little bit further than what I'm doing right now. What I'm doing right now is kind of just a basic overview, but I'm looking at the space industry's um, role in the energy transition. So from transitioning off of fossil fuels and how um, space technology is kind of helping us to better understand the flow of energy on Earth and how we can um, best utilize greener tools um, that we have at our disposal, which I know when I'm saying that it sounds like a very, very broad area. And so I think I, I think that that would be something to kind of drill down a little bit deeper into um, to understand, because people do have this perception, I think, of the space industry of being this 
playground for billionaires and, and being this, I know you're rolling your eyes and I do too, um, about this kind of like false perception of what the space industry is, but the space industry really does play such a huge role in climate change mitigation and in, in preserving the world that we have for future generations. Um, and I think that the energy transition is also going to be playing a huge role in that. Those two areas have a lot of overlap, a lot of crossover. Um, and so that's something that I'm really thinking a lot about right now and researching about, trying to learn more about. Billionaires taking selfies in space gets so much <laughs> attention. But I think it's important to note it only accounts for $1 billion of an overall $350 billion global space economy mm-hmm. market. And hey... I want to go to space. I imagine a future where we all travel to space with the same frequency in which we currently travel in an aircraft. I I keep applying to ask NASA and they keep rejecting my application. <laughs> no joke. <laughs> it's, it's, NASA. <laughs> I'll, I'll go to space. I'm fine with that. Um, and I, I honestly think the space industry, we do a poor job in our marketing in terms of, and maybe this is, you know, some, some, uh, something payload can improve, you know, the billionaires taking selfies gets a lot of press and that's not great press, you know, especially in a time like today when markets are down and we're, we're facing economic uncertainty. You don't want to see these billionaire selfies. However, what if space were to market the $349 billion that go into MRI and CT scanning technology was developed from space exploration? When we landed mm-hmm. astronauts on the lunar surface, we wanted to take selfies. That optic technology was the fundamental invention of life-saving technology in our hospitals every day. Water purification systems, implantable heart monitors, laser eye surgery, robotics, 3D printing, all of this amazing, important life, earth-saving technology was developed via space exploration. And I completely agree with you that I think we will solve climate change. Space will have a part most likely unbeknownst, in solving climate change, in mm-hmm. solving issues we face with here. And I fundamentally believe we need to be a multi-planet species in order to survive, not to give up on Earth, but to fix the problems we're faced with here. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> you did. Um, I look forward to reading the piece. So you want to write about the intersection of space and climate. Part two of the question, who do you want to talk to next? You said a, a favorite part of your gig was the minds you get to learn from and mm-hmm. talk to. who's your your space fangirl moment mine's Gwen oh Shaw. i gotta i gotta just start with i would love to take Gwen Shaw to dinner it was sally ride <laughs> but unfortunately sally ride passed away but mm-hmm. today definitely big g yeah, let's see. I don't know if I have a better answer for that than Gwen Shotwell. Um, obviously, that is a, <laughs> what better person to speak to about the advancement of space technology and the the. I mean, SpaceX has played such a huge role in lowering the cost to orbit. I think, and her role in that has been so huge. And I, oh, that would be a fascinating conversation to have with her. Um, let's see. I don't know. I think. Um, I think I would have to think about it a little bit more. I don't know if any specific names are coming to mind right now, but I love to talk to people who are working in, in, um, you know, at NASA and in other, um, at NOAA and, and some of the, especially NOAA, I think, um, for climate applications to talk to people who are working, um, kind of at the forefront of these, of these 
climate investigations? I don't know if I have a really great answer to that question. In between undergrad and grad, I was working at SpaceX. And it was, as a young female in this industry, so inspiring when Gwen Shotwell would walk down the rocket aisle floor in her red sole Louis Vuittons, just commanding authority with class. It was, Mm -hmm. it just, you know, was so, it provided me the confidence to be able to exude femininity in a very male dominated industry. Um, In terms of your space meets climate, I mean, I should connect you with Lori Garver, who was Mm -hmm. our former deputy administrator of NASA, and she's now the CEO of Earthrise Alliance, intersecting climate with space. So maybe this can be a a conversation for your deep dive plus um, person to talk to. And she's such a trailblazer. I mean, SpaceX wouldn't be here if it weren't for her and creating the private-public partnership between NASA and SpaceX specifically for their commercial resupply missions. That was all, Lori. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's what I should have said because Lori Garber would not be an absolutely incredible conversation to have. Oh, you've got her book here? Amazing. (laughs) For her book, Escaping Gravity. Great. Okay, so 2023. We're winding down the year. Happy early holidays and new year. Thank you to you as well. Thank you. What are your predictions for 2023? Are we going to have more billionaires? We didn't have any billionaires taking selfies this year. We had a lot in the last half of last year. Do you think we're going to have more billionaires taking selfies? Do you think we're going to start to really actually get our internet from space? Mm -hmm. What's Apple going to keep doing? What's like, and can you please, let's let's rank them in terms of like, ugh, most duh, to like, let's come up with some conspiracy theories from 2023. Oh, okay. All right. Gosh, you. I think... (laughs) I think what I'm most excited to see, especially in the kind of the the front half of 2023, is all the moon missions that we're going to have. There are so many landers. Um, I think I think there are three in just the next three months, and I'm sure that there are more planned for the um, later part of the year. Although I would really have to dig down and count them to know exactly how many we're going. Um, but I think humanity's grand return to moon is something that really captures people's um, people's imaginations and has definitely captured mine, especially with Artemis one coming back. And so now this, um, all these landers that are going to the moon and looking for water ice and trying to better understand the lunar surface um, and what we could get from it, what we could build from it um, in situ resource utilization, I think is going to be a huge, um, it's going to be so, so important for building long-term lunar presences on the moon. (laughs) a long-term lunar presence on the moon. And I think I'm really excited just to watch that begin. So all these landers, lunar landers from Astrobotic and Intuitive Machines and the Hakuto-R lander that Japan launched earlier this month, uh, earlier this month, yeah, are um, some of the some of the things that I'm most excited to see in the near-term future. Um, let's see, I think obviously the launch of Starship is going to be huge for the space industry um just an additional just such an increase in the amount of mass that you can get to orbit at one time is is going to have massive implications both for our journey to the moon and eventually to mars as well as just for the growth of the space industry and putting more satellites in orbit allowing us to do more things um more observation more data gathering more communication in the space industry um the space internet, um, I think, you know, we've already started to see that expand 
and grow um, with with Starlink and Kuiper and um, with OneWeb. I think I expect to see that grow even more. Um, I'm excited to be able to actually use the internet on all my airplanes, all my flights, <laughs> which is something that I think even in the last year, I've been able to do so much more than I ever was before. I always just took it for granted that I would be off the grid when I was on an airplane. And now I feel like I can actually work from an airplane, you know, for better or for worse. I was going to say, that's not always a good thing. <laughs> Someone who sleeps and watches movies on airplanes. It's my break time. But yeah, good for you. To- <laughs> you know, it depends on the day. If I, oh, the internet's not working on my plane. Oh, sorry. Um. Let's see. I don't know. What are you thinking? What do you have in your mind for for what's coming in 2023? Oh, I like your moon starship internet plays. Hey, I'm the interviewer. I wasn't expecting this. <laughs> what's like a not a consp- uh, I am a good conspiracy theorist, but what's like a non-obvious one for next year? Okay, I've got one. I've got a controversial one. I think we are starting to hit in the hype cycle, a, it's the right word, trough. Sure. A, I don't think it's a global maximum, but a low, sorry, global minimum. But I think it's a local minimum in the space industry. I think every, I would argue most, if not all technology in the space industry today is a fantasy rocket V300. It's a Earth observation constellation satellite V30. It's a communication constellation satellite V50. And if we keep repeating, and I understand Moore's law is still continuing. So the school bus size satellite that turns into a CubeSat can now turn into a grilled cheese size satellite. Awesome. Let's continue to exponentially decrease the size and increase the power of cheap commercial off-the-shelf electronics. But as a space industry, if we don't come up with the next technical catalyst or momentum driver, the next technology that's going to push the space industry further this local minimum is going to turn into a global minimum. Now, what are potential, and that's pretty dreary, what are the potential technologies? Asteroid mining, manufacturing mm-hmm. in space, more, lo- more lunar moon stuff. But is the timing really there? Not just for a government customer, but for a commercial customer? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to get to the point where Space isn't just used for Earth's benefit, but space is used for space's benefit. And I think the next technology driver, momentum driver, is going to be space for space, or it's necessary to to keep space moving forward. There's there's the hot take. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I think what I am thinking kind of along those lines where I kind of thought you were going with that is with all of these kind of compounding data gathering and communication satellites. So with Earth observation satellites, I'm, I'm excited to see more downstream applications of, of that data gathering. So companies that instead of launching their own satellites or building their own um, payloads to go into space, people who are really taking that data and doing something really interesting with it. So, you know, I talked to scientists who are doing things like using radar data to measure Arctic sea ice thickness, which is something that used to have to be done by hand. Um, People who are, you know, tracking dark vessels and identifying um, illegal fishing and who are using satellite data to do really fascinating data-driven things. Um, That's something that I'm excited to see grow. And I I think that there's such a wealth of information that stands to be gained from this incredible amount of information that we're now gathering from space. 
totally agree with you. There's a lot of data coming from space, but you don't think we already have enough of those data analytics companies? Orbital Insight, Cape Analytics, Crowd AI, Space No, Skywatch. There's just so many that are already mm-hmm. doing it. I like some of the specific markets you've mentioned. And what I found is the ones that I mentioned, they can infiltrate and expand in a single market really, really, really well. Let's say Cape for insurance and property and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But it's difficult for them to expand across multiple. So they end up going really deep in a single vertical rather than across many horizontally. That's more difficult. Um so I actually have a slightly different take on your theory. Sure. I'm looking forward to the ones who own the hardware to vertically integrate. For example, <laughs> when Planet went public, Will's big headline was now that we're, you know, IPOing on the New York Stock Exchange, we're going to use the proceeds to not just own the doves and the satellites in space, but build the software DNA to analyze the images that we're taking. Something I'm really proud of at Spire is from the beginning, we've vertically integrated. We don't just own, uh, we've launched over 150, we call our CubeSats lemurs into space for um, maritime, plane, and weather monitoring and tracking. So we don't just have the assets and the raw data. We have a best-in-class software team, specifically on the weather front, best meteorologists that analyze the data to then give our customers, NOAA, NASA, the Air Force, the actionable information that's most helpful to, to, to their application. So fun 2023 predictions. Rachel, mm-hmm. we're going to have to chat in a year from today. And see how we did. I would love to. I would love to look back on 2023, see where we see where we landed. Yeah, these are always dangerous. So, in our remaining few minutes, I have two other big questions and then some quick fire. Rachel, what's a common misconception about payload? A common misconception about payload. I would say the one thing that we're still kind of trying to overcome is that people still think that we are a pay-to-play publication. A lot of the time people, you know, when we're trying to work with um, space companies and publicize news and really kind of get the scoop on kind of the most exciting things happening in space, people think that that is a service that you have to pay for. I want to say to all you Pathfinder listeners out there, if you work at a space company and your space company has any news to share, I want to hear it. And I promise I will not send you a bill. I just want to hear what, what people are up to. I think that that's a misconception that we, we've run up into less now. But when we first started this company, that was definitely um, something that we ran up into a lot is that people thought they had to like pay to, for news. Um, not true. You get to read Rachel's brilliance for free. It's free. Yes, you can subscribe for free, too. That's another thing. Newsletters free to sign up for. Rachel, if the listeners were to remember one thing from this conversation, which I really enjoyed, learned a lot, and I'll remember everything. But one thing, what would that be? I think that looking back at the year that we've had so far and about the conversation that we've had so far, I think that I want people listening to the conversation really just to think about the role that we play in being responsible stewards of the space environment. This is something that's very near and dear to me. Um, thinking about how we can pursue this um, this growth in the space industry that is, I believe, inevitable and that it really is beneficial for humankind. I think we need to think every day about how we can do that sustainably, how we can preserve the space domain for future generations. It's very important to me, and I, I hope that that sticks with the listeners today. 
Well, I, for one, will sleep a whole lot better at night knowing that you are leading that charge and your mind wants to do so every day. No, that's a really wonderful takeaway. Okay, quick fire, Rachel. One or two word answers. Okay. Would you travel to space? Absolutely. What rocket would you take? Oh, I'd have to say the Falcon 9, I think, just based on proven uh, journeys to orbit alone. What would you take on the rocket with you? One thing. Ooh, a camera. Who would you go with? I would bring my little sister. The adventurer of my family, 100%. Would you do a one-way trip to Mars? Ooh, maybe in 20 years. What's the difference in 20 years? No, maybe maybe longer than 20 years. I don't want to be the first one there. When you got to space, when you're experiencing zero gravity, what would be the first thing you'd do? Flips. What's your favorite space movie? Favorite space movie? Interstellar. Your favorite space show? Star Trek. Space book. It's Halo Calvino's The Complete Cosmicomics. And Space Comic. Uh, what's it called? What's it called? Add and Ride. Add and Ride. Add and Ride. Add Ride. Add and Ride. Rachel, that's you. the one. Thank that's the you. one. Thank you for <laughs> spending the time sharing your story, sharing more about your journey, more about payload, chit chatting. I think both of our favorite topic space. It was such a delight and pleasure. I hope the listeners enjoy. Thank you so much, Tess. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you today. And thank you for taking over as the host of the podcast. What is Pathfinder? Just an idea. You can host Pathfinder. Same thing. Yeah, Ryan, watch out. Coming for you. Coming for his job. (laughs) 